Hello everyone and welcome to Finsight, the global financial institutions industry podcast. My name is Loren Martin and I'm a senior associate in Baker & McKenzie's employment and compensation practice in London. In this episode of Finsight, we're going to take a look at the regulatory framework of the EU whistleblowing directive and some of the practical issues and challenges around implementing a compliant whistleblowing reporting process. My colleagues joining me today are Nikolai Baer and Luis Rodriguez. Um, do you want to introduce yourselves? Thank you, Lauren. Um, my name is Nikolai Baer. I'm a partner in the Munich office of Baker McKenzie. I co-head the German Investigations Compliance and Ethics Practice, and I'm also a member of the Global Investigations Compliance and Ethics Steering Committee of Baker McKenzie. Over the past two years, we have assisted dozens of companies, in particular financial institutions, with updating their whistleblowing programs to ensure compliance with the whistleblowing directive and the respective implementation laws. And I'm really looking forward to sharing some of the insights from our previous projects with our listeners. Hi, Lauren. Uh, hi, Nikolai. My name is Lois Rodriguez. Um, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a senior associate at Baker McKenzie uh, Employment and Compensation Team at Madrid. And it's great to be here speaking today about this hot topic of whistleblowing, which um, is highlighting the importance of having integrated teams across different jurisdictions and areas of law. Great. Thanks. Um, So what's the background to today's podcast? Well, as many of you listening will know, the EU whistleblowing directive should have been implemented by the European Union's 27 member states by no later than the 17th of December 2021. Um, But as you might have anticipated, a number of member states missed that deadline. Um, But over the last few weeks, there have been a number of recent developments with Austria and Spain implementing the directive into their national legislation most recently. And so although there are still a small number of member states that are yet to implement, we are definitely now in a much better position to see the challenges that the measures required by the directive are posing, particularly for global employers. Because while the directive sort of sets those minimum requirements that have to be implemented by member states, as you'll appreciate, many jurisdictions have actually expanded on those. And so although the original aim of the directive was to bring that level of consistency across the EU to kind of minimum levels of whistleblower protection, um, there are actually differences in the local implementation that employers need to grapple with. So we just wanted to take this opportunity to discuss some of the kind of key challenges for global employers that we've been seeing, um, and in particular for those groups who are often seeking to bring uh, as much consistency as they can to operations across different markets. Um, And in that context, I think the first issue we just wanted to touch on in particular was the difficulty that global employers have when they want to align the internal reporting processes that are required by the directive with their existing global reporting frameworks, which, you know, we appreciate for financial institutions and in the fintech space, they're often already very sophisticated. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Lorraine. Um, So even where employers already have a detailed and effective whistleblowing program in place, it's 
most likely that they will need to be adapted to some extent to comply with the national implementation laws. Um, and what is important to mention here is that the directive itself is not a blueprint, let's call it that, for an effective and comprehensive whistleblowing program, uh, because it only prescribes the processes that organization must implement to ensure that the persons who are making a report are sufficiently protected. So in practice, in the past, in particular, financial institutions were already legally re required to establish group-wide whistleblowing channels that applied to a broader range of issues than the scope defined by the directive and the respective implementation laws. So this applied in particular to alleged violations of internal policies and procedures, which are not covered by the whistleblowing directive and the local laws. And also the reports were usually handled and followed up by specialized teams and designated hubs. Now, again, a big difference um, when it comes to the whistleblowing directive and the requirements that have been published by, for example, the expert group of the EU Commission, which advocated for local channels. And uh, unfortunately, quite a few member states have now adopted laws requiring companies to establish such local channels. Um, other countries, like Germany, for example, allow companies to have reports reviewed by specialized central teams. And usually there is a way to keep most of the existing centralized setup, with a few exceptions in uh, countries with stricter localization requirements. So given the uncertainty generally around the role that group com companies can play in compliant with whistleblowing processes for the time being, our recommendation is to assess whether the existing channels, in particular the, the online platforms that have usually been established um, at multinational companies, can be modified to allow for local reporting. But the question whether or not sharing of resources is permissible is not only limited to the whistleblowing program itself, but at the same time it also affects how companies may conduct internal investigations. Right, Lauren? Yeah. Totally. I completely agree. I mean, I think it's a key question, particularly for organizations who already have, you know, an, a sophisticated investigations team in place, whether they can share resources at that part of the process. Um, because, I mean, the directive per per permits that for private entities with between 50 and 249 employees, they can do that. So although each of those sort of separate legal entities is still under an individual obligation to keep the identity of the person making the report confidential or provide feedback and also obviously address the reported breach itself, um, those smaller entities can share resources at the investigation stage. Um, but if we look at larger organizations, the, the directive doesn't expressly prohibit the sharing of resources between entities with 250 more or more employees. Um, and I guess the question is, what do we think? Does, does silence on that point mean that we think it's okay? Well, Lauren, I think it's a, a question of weighing up the risk. Um, the directive's strict confidentiality provisions forbid um, non-consensual disclosure of the whistleblower's identity outside of the group of individuals who are authorized to receive or follow up on reports. And given the directive silence about sharing resources among larger employers, there is a risk there. Um, and doing so would lead to an unauthorized disclosure that breaches data protection regulation in addition to the directive's confidentiality provisions. And also on a related issue, the directive also permits external management of internal reporting channels 
by a third party where this is provided for in national legislation. What we are seeing is that this is envisaging outsourced commercial uh, third party pro providers, but uh, in our experience, large organizations are usually interested in having one group company um, managing the, the reporting channel. And Lois, you just mentioned data privacy. Um, data privacy is indeed another key aspect that companies need to take into account when reviewing their whistleblowing program. So, for example, although the German legislators are quite relaxed when it comes to the role of group companies in the reporting processes, this is definitely not the case with the data privacy regulators when it comes to data privacy breaches. Uh, which can attract significant liability uh, because the fines that can be imposed under the local implementation laws um, implementing the whistleblowing directive are usually absolute amounts um, and the penalties for a violation of the GDPR can be up to 4% of the company's annual worldwide turnover. Yeah, that, that's right. The, the directive puts uh, confidentiality and data protection front and center and we have seen this uh, to be a particular concern for a number of our clients. And of course, this, uh, the relevant protections under the directive relate not only to the whistleblower, but also individuals who are assisting the whistleblower. Um, one of the principal aims of the directive is to protect whistleblowers and those connected with them from retaliation and to ensure that allegations can be investigated without interference from affected individuals. Um, and we cannot forget the fact that uh, sanctions for non-compliance, as, as, as you mentioned, um, under the directive are severe and wide ranging. In some member states, this can be in the form of significant fines. Take Spain, for example, where the fine can go up to 1 million, but there are other potential uh, sanctions, including uh, public naming, which means reputational issues to manage, as well as exclusion from uh, public contracts. And if we go to worst case scenario, breach of the confidentiality provisions could lead to criminal action involving um, imprisonment. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that, you know, data protection compliance is definitely going to always be a very important kind of key factor to consider, um, you know, when you're trying to shape an organization's, a organization's whistleblowing processes. Um, and most significantly, I think, in relation to the management of reports and the internal investigation process, because those reports will generally contain the personal data of the whistleblower. Um, but as well as that, they're likely to contain the personal data of others as well. So, you know, people who are either affected or implicated by the issues that are being raised as part of that process. Yeah, exactly. And and that is why it's, it's really important that uh, those who are responsible for handling uh, reports within our organization are trained on and understand the applicable data protection rules. Companies need to have the necessary checks and controls in place to ensure the security of personal data obtained during the internal reporting process. And if an organization wishes to involve a global, often US-based uh, investigation team, it must ensure that uh, cross-border data transfers are in line with the relevant requirements, um, just for example, through appropriate binding corporate rules. 
And another aspect to consider is that the, the usual protection, uh, usual data protection principles need to be baked into the internal reporting process as well. This means establishing a lawful basis for processing personal data, provision of information to individuals about their data protection rights and how their data is being used, as well as a robust process on retain, retention and destruction of personal data. And let's not forget that organizations need to be ready to deal with data subject access requests. And lastly, um, in terms of data privacy, uh, there might be, of course, local data protection requirements that go farther in terms of requirements and obligations depending on the jurisdiction concern. Yeah, and, and I suppose just in your experience and the, the work we've been doing so far, um, you know, are there any other particular sort of pitfalls that we think companies should be aware of? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and especially one that is closely linked to what we just discussed. Um, so what we've seen quite often is a setup where companies allow their employees to raise concerns with their respective managers and supervisors. So, but particular for companies in a regulated industry, such as the, the financial services industry, this, this can really cause a lot of problems down the road um, for, the, for the following reasons. Um, such a setup likely means that the supervisors and managers are considered whistleblowing channels under the whistleblowing directive. And while this may help with the localization requirements that we just discussed, it creates problems in other areas yeah, because companies must ensure organizationally that those responsible for receiving and reviewing the reports are independent and have the required expertise to in independently evaluate the reports. Yeah, and both of these aspects are almost impossible to achieve if the requirements apply to any supervisor or manager. And second, if the group of individuals who can receive reports is too broad, this creates significant challenges in terms of protecting confidentiality. And, and finally, financial institutions must ensure the auditability of their processes. So and this is a particular problem for all the companies in the financial services industry. Um, but if we define that every supervisor and manager qualifies as a whistleblowing channel, this means that it's almost impossible to prove that the required processes, notification requirements, and what have you were actually followed in, in each case. So therefore, our recommendation to financial services companies is to really streamline the whistleblowing channels as much as possible while respecting any localization requirements. Great. Thanks. Um, so I think we've got a lot to consider there. And, you know, as we were just discussing, the risks are potentially very high in the event of non-compliance. Um, and it seems like it might be a little while before we have a totally settled position on, on some of the areas, particularly around the sort of sharing of resources um, issues, but definitely lots of food for thought in the meantime. Um, Thanks so much, Lewis and Nikolai, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Um, we hope you find the podcast useful. Um, as always, please do reach out to your usual Baker McKenzie contact or, or any of us who've been speaking today. If there are any particular areas or, or projects you'd like to talk through, we're always more than happy to help where we can. Um, thanks again, everyone, for listening. And we hope you can join Baker McKenzie for the next episode of Finsight in due course.